0: Resulting in 1.7 billion visits to online retailers. Deirdre McGittrick is co founder of YouFurnish.com, an online aggregator search engine for furnishings, there to save consumers time and give them choice. She discusses the impact of brand name and how the transition from corporate banking to startup world is a completely different kettle of fish. Welcome, Deirdre, to the show.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, we've just hired our 13th member of staff, staff last week, so uh, already we are continuing our growth rate since we last spoke. So it's, uh, it's been quite the journey and uh, and it continues at pace, but uh, it's it's super exciting and um, I'm really looking forward to, you know, growing YouFurnished.com into the company that I know it can become.
0: And it looks like such an exciting uh, an exciting platform as somebody's these just bought my first house and been through all the pain, I totally Ooh. got this product when, when I saw Congratulations. it. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, and I'm looking forward to talking to you about your 13th hour because it's quite, a, quite an interesting one. Um, but before we do that, um, we always like to get to know our guests and a bit about your... Background, because no one has this hockey stick uh, career. It seems, uh, particularly entrepreneurs. So we always like to learn about your background and sort of how um, how you ended up doing what you're doing today. Um, so if you don't mind, let's let's take you back to the beginning. And you were born in uh, in Ballymote. Uh, which is um, a a small town in Ireland. Um, Tell us a bit about your childhood. Uh, Did you have entrepreneurial influences growing up or was it much more of a traditional um, uh, upbringing? Tell us a bit about um, how you progressed through your childhood.
1: It's, It's funny. I wouldn't say I had an entrepreneurial upbringing, but actually my dad had his own business. So he had a drapery shop in a small enough town, Ballymote, as you mentioned. My friends like to call it and um, So it's obviously <laughs> not a, a bustling hub uh, by any manner of means. But he also had an insurance brokerage and um, an auctioneering business as well. And it, it might sound a bit like an empire, but it's actually just, you know, you do multiple things in a small town to make sure that, that you're able to cover your bills and things like that. But Mm. I spent a lot of time with him. So whilst I say I don't feel like I had an entrepreneur upbringing, I probably did without sort of realizing it. So, you know, our shop um, was attached to our house. So when my mom was at work during the day, you know, I was running out to him to ask him questions and there'd be somebody in the shop. So you'd have to diligently mm. stand until the customer was dealt with. But I suppose you're listening to the conversations, not listening, but listening to see when they were over. So you get your 10p to go buy some penny sweets and you just probably absorb um, I think a lot of information, a lot of body language reading, uh, mm. what's been said, what's been meant afterwards, all of that sort of thing. So I think it's interesting because I think you pick up a lot as a kid, you just absorb everything that you see. And I think that's sort of the introduction into business that I sort of had. And and I've always loved business, really, since, since, since growing up at all. Um, and I ended up going to university and studying law and accounting. And from there, I um, got a job over in London an investment bank. And I just loved it because you were spending, let's say, for example, you were doing a a bond for a company. You were spending two or three months with that company before you even went to market, doing all of Mm -hmm. the due diligence, finding out how the company operates. And it's with maybe their CFO, maybe their CEO and all of their team, understanding the business, the financials, the metrics, but actually the softer bits, you know, where is the customer concentration or where's the risk? What are our investors not going to like about this business? Where will they think that there's, there's risk in, in terms of getting repaid their money at the end of the bond? So yeah. it, it was super interesting. And I always sort of thought I would jump across into one of those companies and start working my way up to the top of one of those. And then I bought an apartment And I tried to purchase it and it was mightily frustrating because (laughs) I knew exactly what I wanted. I had all of screenshots and paper cutouts on the tube. I love to tear out uh, pictures from the Evening Standard. And I had pictures from when you were in, you know, a nice hotel or a nice restaurant Mm -hmm. and you see a chair that you want. But how do you actually find it? It was so frustrating. So I sort of said, why isn't there an aggregator? Why isn't there one place that I can shop the whole market just like I used Rightmove to search for the apartment? didn't matter that there was, you know, a one-man band estate agent or it was a large estate agency group. I just wanted the right home. And now I just wanted the right piece of furniture. And I was having to individually search every single furniture retail that I knew of. And of course, there was many, many that I didn't know of. And it's quite interesting as well. So when you're looking at that sort of, I'm in a good job, I'm doing well, I'm earning lots of money.
0: Yeah, this because you'd idea. worked for some pretty senior roles at this point. You'd worked for JP Morgan, BNP Paribas, HSBC, you know, you were, you were, down. this was your hockey stick moment. This was your career was, looks like on paper anyway, that it was skyrocketing.
1: Yeah, like it, it, it was more than I probably had ever have dreamed up uh, growing up um, in terms of what I'd achieved. And I was running my own portfolio of clients. So it, it was going like fabulously well. And uh, I think I, I caused my mother a little bit of heartache when I said, so I'm quitting my job to start my own business. And she's like, <laughs> what are you at? Um, Not again. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. So, I think though, you, in, in the, re- the reason that I did it is that, you know, I had always ambitions to run my own business or to run a company. And whilst I thought I'd move across into, you know, an established company, here I was with an idea. And actually, one thing I didn't mention from my childhood is that one of the, the bits of the shop that my dad had was uh, curtains and blinds. So he used to go yeah. out in the evening and fit curtains and blinds in all the houses um, around the town. So I would always go with him. Because I loved houses and I just wanted to have a walk around, see the different, all of the new builds out in the countryside, the mm-hmm. bigger houses. And I remember I walked into one lady's, um, you know, master bedroom and I opened up uh, the wardrobe. I was having a bit of a, a gawk, it was still <laughs> empty. But um, we went in and it was a surprise little ensuite bathroom,
0: yeah. but it
1: looked like it was built into a, a wall of uh, built-in wardrobes. And I was like, oh my God, that's genius. So I love that. And I used to spend my spare time um, cutting out the Argus catalogue and actually building my own rooms, the, the plan of them, and then putting all these cutouts of furniture into the rooms What I would buy yeah. what would be in each room. So all of a sudden I was like, so not only can I set up my own business and, and run it, but I can do this in an area that I'm actually most passionate about. And I'm sort mm. of not really sure how I didn't end up in an architecture type role or something like that, which is probably more of my passion led versus investment banking. I love business, but this brought together the passion for business, but also the passion for interior design, furniture and everything like that. So it was saying sort of to myself, if you don't do this, you'll always regret it. You've got to do it now. Yeah.
0: Um it's just, that's you're describing the entrepreneurial bug, aren't you? Something that, you know, uh, you just have to explore. And, it you know, it doesn't seem that too much of a stretch from, you know, you were surrounded by this when from, you know, from your childhood with your dad's drapery business and the curtains and being able to go that passion, the magic of the magic of interior design. Um, and I can picture you Deirdre, in people's <laughs> houses, but I, 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 you know, you and I are both from um, places in rural Ireland where, you know, we were a lot behind the curve in terms of, you know, housing development and whatever. So when somebody did get, you know, build a new house, there was a, there was a certain bit of excitement. But we used to go There's on in the, the talk of the town. It. Yeah, it totally was. You know, everybody would have been talk- talking about it at mass. Have
1: you been in um, Mary's new house yet? Have you
0: seen the black hat? Have you seen, yeah, the, have you seen, have you black, seen the kitchen? Black, not so. have you seen... <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, Irish people everywhere will be totally really into that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you went from... Um, the pain of building your own flat to the idea that you had, Um, but you got married along the way because there's a husband in the mix here, but he's not Irish. How did Ray come into the picture and and how involved was he in the first pain of the first apartment? Um,
1: So it was a joint effort. I I talk about it as I, but I probably overruled him with a lot of things. (laughs) But he was still there for the pain and the suffering and uh, he endured all my complaining and uh, mm-hmm. he drove me around uh, diligently to any shops that I wanted to go and view a product in. So um, he, he did feel the frustration and, you know, it was really, I came home to rain the evening times and I'd say, why isn't there an aggregator? Why isn't there that one place we can shop across the whole market? I just want to see everything so that I have an informed uh, decision to be made. Mm-hmm. And that's when I sort of said to him, we should set up an aggregator mm-hmm. and then we started talking about it more we started researching it he started researching it and he'd actually worked in a startup um called lead forensics and he had been employee number five there they'd grown over five years to like a mammoth company of um i think 500 people across um europe and they'd also gone into the u.s Uh, He was in charge of the partnership division. He had built that from scratch and it was bringing in a third of that company's revenue. So he had the experience in terms of actually how do you build a company? How do you get it off the ground? And I had the experience of, okay, I can raise the money for us. I know what the product should look like, but I didn't know how to start a company. So Mm -hmm. we sort of looked at our skill sets and said we should come together between the two of us we'll be able to do that. so from the get-go it was sort of a, a joint project of both of ours and yeah. um you know he left his job first we sort of tiered that as well so that we kept an income coming in um, and I continued to work while he sort of got it up and running and then I left uh, my job and um, that was in April 2019. Um, and, and it's been going really from strength to strength ever since then. But yes, we got married, uh, to your question, on the 29th of June this year. And um, so Ray is actually Australian. Uh, he's not Irish and uh, he's not from from the UK. So we had quite a tough decision because the 29th was our original wedding date and um, It was the beginning of phase three in Ireland. So I don't know if you remember, but they had all different phases of release. Mm. And so we flew over. We said, look, we'll go ahead with the wedding. We don't know when it'll happen. Otherwise, there's no sign of people being able to travel from the other side of the world comfortably. So let's just go ahead. We'll get married. That's what we wanted to do. And we said, look, we can have a party another time once all our family and friends can get back together. So um, we went back. We self-isolated for two weeks. And then we went back down to Sligo and uh, the last week of self-isolating, the government actually came out and said, you can have up to 50 people at a wedding. So all of a sudden we went from just myself and Ray and two witnesses (laughs) to, oh, my gosh, my brothers can come. My sister-in-laws can come. Um, and, and my aunts and uncles came. So we still pre- kept it pretty small. We had uh, we had 14 guests in the end. Um, I mm-hmm. think a lot of people are still quite um, apprehensive and you couldn't travel very far either. Um, so there was yeah. that travel restriction. So we, we, mm-hmm. we managed just to have immediate family there on my side. And unfortunately, none of Ray's family could travel from Australia. But we had yeah. the, the parish Facebook uh, were able to host the ceremony live on their Facebook yeah. page. Mm-hmm. And we also had a, a Zoom meeting for uh, our friends and family that weren't on Facebook so they all joined the wedding um, remotely and uh, it was sort of weird because you're up on the altar and you've got a handful of people behind you <laughs> and you can see the sort of the laptop over there to the side yeah. and you've just no idea who's on it and you know we've yeah. got so many messages afterwards like I saw so much more than I would at an ordinary wedding. I had the best seat in the house um, and <laughs> so it, it was it was a strange experience in that way. But uh, we, we had yeah. a lovely day all the same and we're glad we went ahead with it.
0: Yeah, something that you'll uh, be able to look back on in, in many years to come. Um, yeah,
1: well, I think the fact that we actually had originally planned a Monday wedding, Monday, the 29th of June, meant that we were actually the first wedding in Ireland with guests post lockdown. Oh, wow.
0: Wow! Yeah, so one
1: for the Definitely. history
0: books, one for the mm-hmm. history books. Yeah, do you remember that crazy time in our lives <laughs> where no one could go to ends? Um, yeah. So yeah, so the the idea, um, and this will be my pun into cool idea. Um, which was the original Indeed. test idea. <laughs> Did you like that? Um you start you actually launched a test uh website when you were trying to t- test this um hypothesis that you and Ray had. Um tell us about that launch period, what the original uh brand was and and what it looked like at the time. Yes, yes. Um so the, the original name of the business uh was
1: Cool Dia. And that is a pun on my cool idea that nobody (laughs) gets that connection. So that was a fail. (laughs) Not only, Patricia, does nobody get that connection, but... If I got on another call where somebody was like, and um, how do I uh, pronounce, uh, un, pronounce it, is it like Calde, 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 you're like, oh gosh, this will not work. So basically nobody could spell or say the name um, and phonetically, you know, you just wouldn't know whether it was C-O-O-L. Um, yeah. So we realized that wouldn't work. But what the test website did was, you know, we were really like, right, we have this idea, We've tested it on people. We've run focus groups. They said that, you know, this is something that they would use. But what people say and what people do can often be two different things. So we realized we were going to need to test it um, in real life. And, and that's a two-sided test, really, because we're uh, a quasi-marketplace in one way. So can we get retailers to sign up to the platform and the proposition? And can we get retailers to come on to the website to search and to click through onto sales so maybe that's an important one is that uh, we don't actually sell furniture on our site we are a search engine so people come on to youfurnish.com to search the entire mm-hmm. market once they find the product that they want they click out to the furniture retailer who they purchase from directly so it's a bit okay. like sky scanner and when you click out yes. you see your BA flight and you click out and you purchase from BA So, we needed to check whether customers would actually come on, use the platform, click out and convert to purchase. And then we get paid a commission uh, from Mm -hmm. generating those sales to the furniture retailer. So, you know, was it commercially viable? Um, And and the test was was, was a great success. We signed loads of retailers, they were really loving the concept. And um, also, lots of consumers came on and converted through to purchase. So, we were like, okay, that's wonderful. We have a commercially viable uh, business. So how do we scale it? And I suppose that's where earlier you mentioned the round, we raised 1.8 million, but we realised we'd have to go out and raise some money to build, um, you know, scalable tech that would be able to deliver this proposition en masse. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, our pockets were not deep enough, so we realised we'd need to get outside investment. So we went out and um, we raised a seed investment round. We've raised total seed of 1.8 million. And that is across angel investors. Um, And it it was quite interesting doing that, I suppose, because I've come from a background of of raising money for corporates. And, you know, we sort of don't look below 250 million and you're going out to raise it. And you're like, oh, well, we're only trying to raise two, one to two million. Surely that'll be super easy. And um, what you realize is that it's a very different proposition when you're going out to a fund manager and telling him to put some of his fund into it, you know, his fund being your pension, my pension. Versus yeah. when you're telling somebody to put their hand in their own pocket yeah, to invest in a business that's up and coming. It's a startup. So therefore, by nature, it's it's got a lot of risk involved. And um, so although I had a lot of experience in it, it was sort of different because of the proposition that we were bringing. And um, but we were very, very lucky that, you know, we had a great network of people, colleagues and friends that we'd worked with and um, that had some, I suppose, um, available cash uh, because they they um, they have good jobs and things like that. So we were able to tap mm-hmm. into them, and we also got some um, introductions into some entrepreneurs who had built um, and are still running or have exited very successful businesses. And I think they were the most interesting conversations because those people been there, done that, and yeah. also they are. I like to think they're, they're they're realistic around what the journey looks like because they've been there. It's not one hockey stick, as you said. You know, there's ups and downs, there's challenges. And what I will say about all of the, the investors, and I just don't think I could have picked a more perfect bunch, um, is that I can ring them up. I can ask them any questions. They will give me their advice. They'll give me their opinion. They'll give me introductions. Um, but they're also not scared when you're saying, oh, well, this problem happened. Because they know problems happen, so you're, yeah. you're very realistic and very open and honest with them, which I think is a great place to be. And because of that, you can go to them when you have a problem, and they'll help you along rather than trying to conceal it to make it look like it's only a rosy, uh, you know, bed. And it's it's that hockey stick always.
0: Yeah, I think what you're talking about there is almost like the power of experience. You know, the experience that you had from your um, you know, from your investment banking um, career and also your husband's, um, Ray's experience as, uh, as head of partnerships, you know, being through all those separate journeys and having all of that knowledge rather than being frightened of it, had you not been on a different roundabout at a different time in your, in your, uh, in your, um, career history. Um, but what is it, um, I guess, you know, I, you know, what has it been like, um, that journey for you personally, you know, it, there is a, there is a significant difference between working in within a big organization and, um, you know, a lot of the sort of high park corporate roles that you've had to moving into starting out and running your business for, for yourself. What has that transition been like and what challenges has that thrown up for you? Yeah,
1: it's, um, it's completely different kettle of fish.
0: <clears throat> it's, it's very, very different,
1: and, you know, when you do have a lot of success in a career, I probably came in a little bit arrogant, thinking that it would be simple because, you know, I've, I've managed to succeed in life. And, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of hard work. Don't get me wrong. Like clearly you study and hmm. you work really hard, but it, it, it all came easily enough. You know, you were doing really well and, and you just sort yeah. of assume you'll come in and you'll just start off a company and it'll just go super <laughs> well and that there won't really be any problems. Yeah. And I suppose there is the first difference because when something goes wrong in banking, and, uh, and it did, um, at times escalate it up. And, you know, you could always throw it up a level if you weren't comfortable yeah. and, and get somebody else to make the decision. As where there's nobody else to make the decision um, in your company. It's you. Mm-hmm. You know, you can ask for advice. You try and, go out and get as many different viewpoints and opinions. But at the end of the day, you need to make the call. So I think that's one of the first things that we had to... Um, get used to and, um, you know, you realize as well that, you know, when you don't have that comfort, that level of maybe being able to throw it up, you you probably listen so much more intently, not only on what people say, but how they're saying it and what's been unsaid so that you can try and get every piece of information around it um, to help you to come to the best decision. And that's ultimately what a startup is about. I suppose it's it's making the best decision at the time, given what you know. And then I would say the next thing about it is, what did you not know in hindsight? And could you have put yourself in a position to know that? So retrospectively, always evaluating, how could we have done it better? Okay, this went well, but how could it have been even better? And just constantly trying to self-evaluate yourself, because again, there's nobody else to tell you. You did this yeah. wrong. You did this right. You need to figure out what you're doing right, what you're doing wrong. So when something, you know, you get you get a success. How did that happen and try and evaluate right from the get go? You know, was it an introduction? Was it, um, you know, a conversation that you had with somebody? Was it an email? How did that first like where was that turning point in that conversation mm. that managed to lead to that success? So I think that was that was one of the big things. Um, and then I suppose one of the similarities was probably uh, the working intensity. You know, I was regularly working late evenings, 11 p.m., 2 a.m. at times, Um, weekends, bank holidays, and that's continued. But I suppose one thing I, I remember there was a bank holiday. Um, I think it's the May bank holiday. And all of my friends were going up to Scotland. They were doing a big race and we were all going up to support. And uh, I had my suitcase in, in the office. And Friday came and Friday went and I was still in the office. I'd missed my flight. I was like, oh, there's a train that I can get the train up overnight. And then that evaporated. And then it was like, there's a flight on Saturday morning. I could get," <laughs> And then it was like, no, no, I'm staying in London for the weekend working and you guys are all up there. And I remember feeling quite sad about it. I was like, oh, i are having so much fun and I'm missing out. And then to your, your startup life, I suppose. Uh, I had friends then who were all down um, in Brighton for the bank holiday weekend, and it was all really sunny, and I didn't mind not being there because I was working, uh, but I was mm-hmm. working on on my business, you know, and I think that's where the difference is: is that you knew it. I want to work all the time. I literally want to work all the time because you can see the progress that you're making you know it moves yeah. so much quicker than corporate life I suppose is one of the other differences and um, because there's a lot of bureaucracy and paperwork and uh, different levels of opinions um, and people to get sign off from and now all yes. of a sudden you can make things happen really quickly and I suppose you know the hiring even since we last spoke we've gone from 12 people to 13 people
0: that's just the rate of growth in a startup which is phenomenally exciting. If you're enjoying the podcast, simply hit the like and subscribe button on your favourite podcast platform. If you have the time, leave us a review. You can do that really easily by going to ratemypodcast.com forward slash fast forward. Yeah, so it's almost like the um, the uh, the reward um, that you that you get, um, you know, and the satisfaction that you get from seeing something grow and that knowing that that has come from. From your from your hard work and that it's it's been driven by by you as co-founders, um, and the business has been uh, moving very quickly. So, um, at some point you rebranded, so you ditched the Koldia idea, Koldia idea, um, and rebranded <laughs> as you for, as you for it. I actually don't think it's that bad. It's like I like it. it you know, it so works many I totally get. So many- it.
1: So many people have asked me, what does it mean in Irish? And I was like, oh, God, it's not an Irish word. I mean, uh, it means, you know, your home.
0: I mean, I did. I did ask that <laughs> off air. <laughs> I did immediately think it was going to be Irish. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, but, you know, no, the concept the, itself has 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 taken off. You've rebranded now as as you furnished. Tell us about that rebranding journey, because that, that is a difficult um, decision to make as well, even even at an early stage of a business. Um, you know we've seen some rebrand successes but we've also seen some rebrand horror stories what was your thought process how did you get there um and how did you settle on new furnish
1: yes so i think what we realized is that it was just the struggle of people um trying to pronounce or spell it. it it just wouldn't really work so we realized that we'd have to change it you know it was pretty constant constant feedback from our investors as well mm-hmm. so uh we took that on board and um we went with youfurnish.com it's really trying to be it does what it says on the tin type of name and um, but it's also indicative of what we do around furnish furniture and it's mm-hmm. you are furnishing your home and i think that's very important as well because you know furniture and furniture purchasing it's it's quite an emotive journey because it's your home. It's where your family are going to play. It's where your friends are going to come over to visit. It's where you're going to relax on the sofa watching TV after a crazy day. It's where you're going to mm-hmm. find sanctuary in your bedroom and have a great night's sleep. So what we found is that people really want to do it themselves. They really want to be involved in the process and picking out items. You know, oh, we bought this one lamp when we were away up in... Um, you know, the the Lake District for a weekend and, you know, items in the home can have a lot of connotations for people. So it's all about them doing it themselves. And and we wanted to reflect that in the name. And it's about, therefore, you furnishing uh, your home. And um, really, once we decided that, you know, I, what I would say is in hindsight, I, I wish we'd done more due diligence around the Kuldeer name at the very beginning um I think the problems that came to the fore around, you know, spelling, pronunciation, all of that would have would have come out because it is painful to change a name, it is painful to, to rebrand. It doesn't really matter what level of, of business you're at, obviously I think the later you do it, the more painful that it is. Um, but you know, you, you're starting from scratch in one way. So I, I would tell people to to do um some research in relation to their name and the proposition. And, you know, a lot of people will say, yes, that's great. It's great. It's great. But try and find the people that have an issue with it and understand yeah. what is their issue, because the people that have um, disagreements with you are probably the best people that you can be speaking to.
0: Yeah. Because a lot of people more. I yes. find.
1: Yeah. And um, they, they, they sort of they tell you good news. They only want to tell you good news because they're afraid. I don't know if they're afraid they'll upset you or something. But even mm. if they think something is silly, they won't say it. They're oh no, that's a great idea. And then behind the back, they're oh, like that'll never work. Um, so like it's <laughs> classic Irish, the, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> find the people that will tell you it won't work to your face and ask yeah. them why. Now they're not always right, but they have an interesting viewpoint, and that's valuable. Mm. So yeah. so get those people, get those people. They're they're your friends. They're the people you want to be your friend. So um yes, we, we've rebranded and the youfurnish.com launched in July 2020, and uh, we've had really good feedback around the brand, the colouring, the the iconography, and um, everything. So so we're delighted with how that's landed, and we think it's just so much stronger of a proposition. And I suppose post raising uh money as well. Now we're gonna mm. be looking to take the the brand to the masses so i think having a good name and um and a good brand will be so much more easier to achieve that with
0: yeah and it seems to be working well for you because you do have you know in terms of taking the brand to the masses you're bringing the the mass retailers with you i mean um from what i can see you guys have john lewis signed up you've got french connection signed up uh dunelm and, um, you know, those partnerships are are really significant and will bring consumers to your platform because they know that they can get that cohesive, comparative um, aggregator like you were talking about. You know, you're achieving your mission. But, you know, it's not easy to get those types of brands on board. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about how you guys um, have managed to do that in terms of the process that you went through to, to bring those retailers into the fold?
1: Yes. So we've signed over 120 to date um, since COVID began. We've actually had so many reach outs directly from furniture retailers themselves looking to join the platform. And that's interesting because we thought we'd have to go out and uh, and talk to them all to try and bring them on board, but they're actually reaching out to us. So um, Ray's background, as I mentioned, is partnership. So he took the lead in terms of speaking with the furniture retailers and, and getting them on board. But the idea is, is that You know, if you're a furniture retailer, you're trying to get your products in front of consumers and you get your products in front of your own consumers because they come onto your website. But what about the consumers that don't? What about the consumers that don't even know you exist, maybe? Mm -hmm. So the proposition is really that we have consumers who are actively looking for furniture. We want to show them your products because they're actively looking with intent to buy. So for a furniture retailer, that's a compelling proposition. And if you're a furniture retailer, you're saying, I want to expand my audience. I want to get new customers. So, you know, we were very cognizant around we need to be the place that has all furniture retailers. So you mentioned the big ones um, you know, we've got made.com, we've signed Wayfair um, you mentioned Dunelm and, and, and John Lewis, you know, they're probably uh, some of the biggest ones in the market. Um, but we've also got lots of other ones. And, you know, you mentioned the French bedroom company, um, Habitat, SCS. There's all these names that you're familiar with, but in the moment mm-hmm. it can be hard to think of them. And then yeah. as you continue down the market, there's loads of brands out there that have amazing products but you might not know they exist to the same extent uh, that they don't have um, that like sort of mass brand recognition. So there's loads of of brands out there. And, you know, we've got Cox and Cox and Barker and Stonehouse and then to smaller retailers again um, who have some fabulous stories. So we've signed a lady called Claire Godian. Claire grew up in Guernsey. She makes rugs, All of her rugs are designed from her childhood growing up by the coast. I can just see the sea, the skies, you know, with the sunsets, uh, the seaweed, everything of her rugs just screams, you know, nature. And it's beautiful. And she has rugs that are made 100 percent from recycled bottles, plastic bottles. So it's stories like that and brands like that, you know, I talked earlier about the connection and you know, maybe you grew up in Guernsey or maybe you went on holidays there and you'd love to have something that, you know, when you have it, you know that you're supporting a local business. Um mm-hmm. it's it's brands like that as well, that it's lovely to be able to tell their stories alongside the big guys. And I think, you know, it's it's like um shopping for clothing. You know, how many people do you know that have that shop at one brand only? Nobody, everybody shops Mm -hmm. across the market. They buy different pieces from different people and furniture is the exact same. And I think that's what I like is that, you know, you're creating this platform to bring choice to consumers, but there's room for everybody on there because nobody only shops from one brand.
0: No, completely. Like when you're just you're talking about um, sort of how you're bringing that to life in a story. And I'm thinking about the stripy curtains in um, (laughs) in my living room. And I, uh, in my head, I wanted striped curtains curtains for my living room, and I spent months looking for them. Lots of different. I wouldn't have cared where I bought them from. Um, the thought that I could have just gone onto your website uh, had I been buying them this year, then that would have solved a major problem for me. Um, but yeah, do you think you know from what you're saying, Deirdre? Um, are you? I mean, is you furnish leveling the playing field for smaller bespoke, uh, retail, uh, furniture retailers? Do you think?
1: Yeah, I, I like to I think, think it is.
0: Um, you know, it creates
1: equal opportunity. Um, so if you're a consumer, as you said yourself, you're looking for the stripy curtains. You don't care where they're from. Just as you don't care, you know, in an estate agent, if you're using Rightmove, you don't care yeah. who's selling it. You don't go out to buy the cheapest three-bed semi-detached house. You have got to buy the right one. And that's the same with furniture. And people will search a lot because it's a high-ticket purchase and it's going to be in your home for a while. So can't just replace it, and I think even more so given sustainability and um, having you know that sort of good corporate citizen, you know, mm-hmm. you want to buy something that will last a long time and that you can continually sort of update in in other ways by maybe you know getting a different set of cushions rather than replacing the sofa. So I think it does it, like it really brings everybody together, so that the consumer can make their choice based on what's right for them and what's right for them is obviously, um, you know, a real triumph in terms of the, the furniture retailer and then being able to choose, you know, their product from whoever offers it.
0: Um, you touched um, briefly on COVID there and one of the positive impacts that it's had on <clears throat> on the partnership side with the retailers, which is um, really exciting to hear. But it's not the only positive effect that um, COVID has had on Furnish. Can you tell us a bit more about the overarching um, impact that, that that's had on the on the revenue side? Yes, of course. So I, I've
1: mentioned it from the furniture retailer perspective. But of course, we also have um, the consumers who are looking for furniture. And I suppose people that have been spending a lot of time in their homes and um, people that have been spending a lot of times in their home have been looking for new furniture. All of those projects that maybe you put off that you had intended one day to get around to. People are slowly getting around to them now. Um, so we found a lot of people were actually looking for their home. And I think that's reflected in um, furniture sales throughout COVID. So um, at the very beginning as well, you know, we had great spells of weather. So outdoor furniture, I think everybody was nearly sold out of all of their furniture. There was such high demand. <laughs> yeah. um, and I suppose as you look at, you know, the home office obviously as well was very popular with desks and chairs mm-hmm. and things like that. And as people have looked at, COVID and how it's continued and the continued uncertainty around it you're sort of looking at your home in a very different light now and you're looking at it as it's not maybe you know I was probably guilty of this it's it's where I came back lay my head for a couple of hours and was out and about again as where now it's the time it's the place I spend all my time so, you know, what do I want that to look like as a result? And, you know, you're so much more willing to invest in it and buy nice pieces that gives you joy because you're there for so long. So I think people's homes now and and I think that will continue even even if we go back to some sort of new normal and whatever that might look like. I still think there'll always be that little urge in you to be like, oh, well, we might have to go back to our homes. So I want my home to be that real sanctuary from the world and the craziness and willing to invest in in items because of that
0: yeah i think the housing market's indicating that that's um certainly what's in the back of people's minds i think we've just gone through lockdown realizing that we all our houses are all too small (laughs) and that we need more space and hence the housing market plus obviously the stamp duty holiday has helped it along but i think everybody's um you know trying to prepare for a potential second lockdown which unfortunately it won't come with the luxury of lovely sunny weather um when it comes because it will be uh, in during the winter time for us all but so as you said that you know the inside of your home needs to give you um to give you joy um so let's let's go back to focusing on the um so the next stages for you furnish that now so you've had you have had you know an incredible um sort of 2020 in a lot of ways for the business and that said you've You've been imp- impacted in so many ways through COVID with your um, with your wedding and with the family and everything, um, but you you've, you've con- constantly looked ahead. And I've read um, an article that you did recently, Deirdre, where you talked about um, one of the hardest things for the business um, to grow was to find the correct hires, to find the right people that fitted the culture and the skill sets that you were looking for. Um, but you, uh, you've you mentioned a few times that you've had your 13th um, employee join the business and they've joined the senior leadership team. Um, and I'd love to know um, the story behind um, Tony Wood and how you found her um, and how she decided to join the team because she's done something quite similar to you is as, as in come out of the big corporate world and come into a startup. So tell us a bit about that. Yes, yes. Uh, so Tony Wood was the
1: ex- uh, Chief Marketing and Commercial Officer for DFS, and she was also on on their board. So she has a wealth of corporate experience. and um, She's worked with you know big consumer brands like uh, Procter and Gamble for for years, where she worked with the Gillette brand that everybody's probably familiar with. Um, she's also worked with Cost Coffee, and then most recently um, with DFS, which of course is in the furniture um, sector. So. Um, It's quite funny with Tony. Actually, we were introduced by uh, somebody who said you should have a conversation with this lady. She's really interesting. So it was just a chat. And Mm -hmm. uh, we started chatting and she loved the concept. She could see the pain point from the consumer's perspective, having worked um, in the furniture sector. And she could also see the challenges that the furniture retailers were facing. Um, So we sort of went away from the chat and said, Oh, that was an amazing chat. Like she's super interesting and super experienced. And we're like, do you think would she like maybe like you know ever like consider a small company (laughs) like us? So we're like, well, we'll arrange another call and we'll just sort of ask her. And um, she was actually she came back and straight away we were like, oh, so we were interested to know would you be interested in joining a company like ours? And she she was like, well, actually, yes. And I was like, wow, oh, wow, okay, cool, amazing, yeah, this is this is great. <laughs> what and are going um, to <laughs> Yeah, so I, I like it wasn't necessarily we were out looking for a CMO. In fact, we weren't. Um, and I think what we realized is the 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 passion and uh, the 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 vision that we had was very aligned with what she saw in the market and what her experience was. Mm-hmm. And I think from there, when we, you know, we had such a good chat the first time and we were just, you know, sharing our corporate experience and what we'd done and what we were doing. And um, it really resonated with with Tony and her career. And I suppose the next big challenge that she was looking for as well. And, um, you know, there's a certain time that, you know, do you go into another corporate role or, or do you sort of push, push the boundaries and, and push yourself and really challenge yourself as well in, in a space that's maybe less mm-hmm. comfortable? And uh the stars just sort of aligned um, with Tony. So we're we're delighted that she has come uh, on the YouFurnished.com journey. And, you know, already she's had a, a serious impact and we're really excited about what we can do into the future.
0: It's a really exciting hire. I think, you know, we talk to a lot of um, businesses that are scaling and quite often one of the things that they Sometimes fail to do is to identify those skill get skills gaps to get them to the next level, or the fear of you know the affordability is when you bring those big heavy hitters into your senior leadership team. You know they often come with a challenge around how do you um you know how do you resource that um you know and it, it can you know it's sometimes where where scaling businesses can can fall down a little bit. So it's really exciting that you guys. Um, for whatever reason, Sarah and Deputy have, have come across, Tony, that you've definitely grabbed onto her and brought her into the team. It would be great to see how that, um, how that unfolds. Um, so what, what is the future for YouFurnish? What's next for you guys?
1: So we're very focused now since the, the relaunch back in July of YouFurnish.com. We want to bring it to the masses. We want to grow the brand across the whole of the UK so that consumers realise that a solution exists out there. This can save you time. It can save you the hassle. You can find what you're looking for, whether it's quirky, whether it's functionality, whether it's price driven, whatever it is, we're here to help make search easy for you. So it's all about getting the message out is uh, the next challenge and getting it out across, you know, the whole of the UK.
0: Um, And I've no doubt I will be going on to um, have have a look to find some pieces for my place. Um, we always like to wrap up the podcast with um, some advice for fellow founders. And um, I wonder, Deidre, if you would take a few minutes to maybe reflect upon some of the biggest lessons that that you have learned um, from building from building the business.
1: Yes, I think I'd have three, two of them I've already mentioned. So the first is around um, the name for me, so your brand and testing that out. Um, the second that I mentioned as well is making sure that you're talking with a lot of diverse people, but that you're getting the people that disagree with you because you learn so much more from those than, than the yes people. And I think the third is around culture. And, you know, it's 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 coming more to the fore, I think, with companies and the realization that people want to work for a company that does good. But it's challenging to get those people that are a fit And I think what I've realized is that it's super, super important and probably even more so at the moment. So, you know, I haven't met some of the people that have worked in the business. I had a three month review with the lady and I was like, oh, it's weird that we still haven't met. And I was like, oh, my God, you're right. We still haven't met. This is so weird. You know, we adapt so quickly as humans, but we are living in unprecedented times in another sense. So getting the right people with the right attitude and the right initiative and the right fit for your company, your culture is absolutely key. And I think that's going to be a real challenge going forward, because how do you evaluate that fit when you're meeting somebody on a Zoom call for two or three hours before giving them an offer um, for the job? So I would just say, really try and and know what your culture is about. Um, actually, when we were starting the business, the first thing we did was write out our values Um mm-hmm which is probably the right thing to do, but it's not because we, we knew what we wanted to do in that, in that way or, or we, we said, oh, this is the right way we should do it. But we just felt really strongly about what we wanted our companies to be. So, you know, when we looked at the respective companies that we worked for before, what did they do well? What did they do wrong? What were the things that really frustrated you and saying, right, well, we want to make sure we never overcome like that. So what are we about? How are we going to treat our people? Think about all of that and sort of embed it into... These are our values. This is what our culture is going to be. And then try and incorporate that into the interview process so that you're getting the best sense of people that are coming into your business and you try and align the fit. And you will get it wrong um, and when you do, you know, recognize it and and you have to act and, and act fast um, and learn and, and go again. But just try and put in place that bedrock and how you're going to bring in your cultural fit into the interviews through through questions to make sure that you're getting the right fit for the company, because it's, it's not just about the skills, that it is about the cultural fit.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree that this is the most challenging time that we've all experienced and have been able to do that um, cohesively. Um, great advice to um, finish on, Deirdre. I've really enjoyed it. Um, Listening to your story and the amount of imagery that it throws up for me personally when you're describing some of the sort of the um, your journey has been certainly um, very entertaining. So thank you for that. And um, for anyone out there that is um Maybe in that place where you've got a burning idea, but you've got a successful career and you are thinking about um, having a go, hopefully uh, Deirdre's story um, will give you um, a better night's sleep. Thank you. Fast Forward is a weekly interview podcast brought to you by Tech Manchester, an incubator for digital and creative startups in the Northwest. I'm your host, Patricia Keating. The podcast is produced by Sarah Beggy, audio editing by Jamie Gounlock and music by Parma Violets. If you have any questions, feel free to drop us a line at info at techmanchester.co.uk or follow us on any of our social channels, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook and LinkedIn, all under Tech Manchester.